0: I'm Charlie Rossiter and this is Poetry Spoken Here
1: Okay, once again, if you're just warning us if you're just joining us the, the breaking story that we're following out of New York City um, within the span of 18 minutes two separate planes crashing into the World Trade Center
0: When America was um, attacked on September 11, 2001 normal life seemed to no longer exist oh, my God that looks like a second plane. I didn't hit. see a plane go
2: in. That, that just exploded. I just saw another plane coming in from the side. People
0: were in shock, and many were in need of emotional support. Individuals and the nation as a whole were trying to make sense of what had happened. One of the oldest ways that people have made sense of events is to tell stories about them through creative expression, poetry, music, art. In the case of 911, many turned to poetry. People who did not typically write poems wrote them to express their deep feelings of grief and loss and confusion. The poems seemed to be everywhere. We received them in emails, heard them at poetry readings, and read them on the internet. Some people sent their poems to the National Association for Poetry Therapy, unsolicited. These people needed to express themselves and felt a desire to share that expression. The organization, having received so many poems and recognizing the importance of this outpouring of grief, quickly decided to publish a collection of them, along with poems solicited from poetry therapists and other poets. The resulting book was called Giving Sorrow Words, a collection that has gone through four printings for a total of 9,000 copies, a substantial number for a collection of poetry. The books were distributed free by poetry therapists to members of poetry therapy groups, support groups, and others who used the collection as a stimulus for discussion and for personal expression as individuals worked through their personal thoughts and feelings related to the national tragedy. Regular listeners to Poetry Spoken Here know that we usually focus on a single poet's work, featuring her poems and discussing sources of inspiration, the poetic process, personal connections with the art. On today's podcast, we're doing something different. We're examining a single subject, poetry therapy. The use of poetry for personal growth and healing has a very long history. In ancient times, primitive peoples used rituals that included witch doctors and shamans chanting, for the health and well-being of the tribe. As far back as the fourth century BCE in Egypt, words thought to be healing were written on papyrus and dissolved to be ingested by patients. In modern times, poetry therapy has become a recognized therapeutic modality as one of the creative arts therapies, gaining in acceptance and in recognition. Opportunities for training are increasing, as is the number of poetry therapists and the places in which they work. To help us learn more about poetry therapy today, I'm joined by three guests who will share their expertise and insights on the subject. Dr. Lynn Capitan, Mount Mary University, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, is an internationally known art therapist, past president of the American Art Therapy Association, who for a decade served as editor of that association's professional journal, Art Therapy. She will be bringing the bigger picture to the discussion to help show how poetry therapy relates to the other creative therapies. Then, Dr. Beth Jacobs, a clinical psychologist in private practice in Chicago and Evanston, Illinois, will speak as a practitioner who often uses reading and writing of poetry in other forms when she works with clients. She's an adjunct faculty member in the School of Medicine at Northwestern University and the author of the book, Writing for Emotional Balance. Finally, Professor Nick Mazda, founding editor of the Journal of Poetry Therapy, will talk with us about developments in the profession of poetry therapy today. In addition to editing the journal, he authored the widely used textbook, Poetry Therapy Theory and Practice. We begin our discussion with Dr. Lynn Capitan, past president of the American Art Therapy Association. I'm joined now by Dr. Lynn Capitan. Lynn, I'm really glad you could join me to talk to me about creative arts therapies. It's a pleasure. I wanted you on this program. Our focus is poetry therapy, but I thought it'd be good to have someone like you uh, who could talk to us about the broader perspective of creative arts therapies. To start with, What are the creative arts therapies?
1: The creative arts therapies are a a collection of uh, different disciplines who all use the the notion of the creation of arts as a way of um, providing therapeutic relief to people who are suffering from a variety of of, um, concerns. Um, They include art therapy, visual arts therapy, music therapy, dance movement therapy, um, poetry and bibliotherapy, and uh, drama and psychodrama therapies.
0: Wow. Okay, so it, it could be any art form used <laughs> yeah. in a therapeutic for a therapeutic purpose. Is it possible to generalize and talk about what they do that's uh, different from other therapeutic approaches?
1: Yes, I think that um, to understand why they're so effective in therapy is to, um, to think about how natural it is for people to turn to any art form when they're trying to express something about their lives that's difficult to put into words or that's difficult to convey in in an ordinary sense. So if you just think about all of the the, the richness that we have in the arts, that comes from people's lives. And so when people turn to their own lives as material and uh, express themselves through the arts, they're able to get in touch with um, aspects of themselves that they want to understand better, that they want to put into perspective, uh, that they want to be able to communicate to others. So, for example, uh, particularly for people who are uh, dealing with trauma, um, they'll turn to the arts to express something that's inexpressible. And they can do that through music, through poetry, through arts, through the fine arts, um, and even through movement or dance.
0: You'd say that's the unique strength is that they allow you uh, – somehow it manages to get you access to things you might not have access to. Mm-hmm. Right. Otherwise
1: you go into a different part of your life or a different um, aspect of your experience. There's this, I just recently uh, read uh, a quote from Milton Glasser, who's a well-known designer. And he he has been thinking about what is art uh, for most of his life. And one of the things that he says is that the arts call attention to something. They, they offer attentiveness. And I think that's exactly how it works for people or one of the ways that it works for people is that when they move into an art form, it calls attention to some part of themselves that they want to explore or understand better, or, as I said, communicate and convey to somebody else as a way of um, um, making a connection.
0: That is really interesting, and you made me think of this question. Is it also that with art, you might say something that you don't quite yourself know what you're saying?
1: Mm Yes. Yes.
0: Okay, and that's where the therapist comes in?
1: Yeah, the therapist facilitates that. So if I'm um, ex- you know, trying to convey something and, and I still don't quite understand it myself and I go into an art form, the therapist might help me find the art form that best conveys what is emerging or what, is, what I'm trying to express, might help me focus that, might facilitate that through a conversation uh, might help me um, make a connection to my insight around that, but also make a connection to another person. It's also important in art therapy, in the arts therapies, to uh, to connect with other people, so that you're not carrying these sensations alone. And of course, the arts the arts have always done that. They've all, they've always conveyed important information between people and in, in these social relationships. So you just take that and you put it into a therapeutic relationship. And you're able to meet the same kinds of therapeutic goals that another um, non-art therapist type of person might might focus on in therapy. And
0: uh, mentioning the connection with other people reminds me, poetry therapists very frequently work with groups. Uh, How is it with with, uh, visual art therapists?
1: Same thing. Visual art therapists work um, with individuals, but also with groups in the field of of art therapy, there is a continuum of working from individuals all the way through communities as well. Um, there are a lot of, uh, if you can imagine, some of the public art uh, types of um, um, public arts works that that artists are working uh, facilitating with large groups of people. That can take on a, a therapeutic aspect as well, particularly if it's a community. Group that is um, experiencing something that they're trying to heal from and recover from.
0: Is this the kind of thing that's related to public art, where you someone goes into a community and uh, a group of people from the community creates some kind of group project thing?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's absolutely oh. possible. Wow. Mm-hmm. But that's that would I would I would say that that's more on the community arts end of the spectrum. So that's like moving really far away from a more of a psychotherapy or a counseling focus and more into a community focus, yes.
0: I guess it's related to when poetry therapists get a group of people to try to create a history of their community or some sort of thing like that. Closest connection I can come up with. Or Would you say the arts therapies are particularly useful or powerful with any particular populations?
1: Well, I had mentioned before trauma, but that might be because right now, the, the use of the creative arts therapies in trauma is is really getting a lot of um, media attention. Uh, recently, there was an article in the National Geographic, I think a couple of months back, that described an art therapy program with a group of veterans, and that's something that, of course, has captured a lot of our attention. But I would say that that's that that's uh, that's true not just with um, combat veterans, but anybody who has been who is trying to work through trauma. And I think one of the reasons why I mentioned trauma is because Um, The research shows that it's difficult to uh, recover from trauma because of having to put the experience into words is a very difficult thing. And so being able to move into a place where one doesn't have to tell the story in ordinary words um, is, is helpful. Uh, And it it helps people um, connect with and express something without the fear of exposure that comes when you describe it in in sort of an ordinary uh, light. So for example, I could talk to you about it, about my trauma, it would be difficult. But if I composed a a poem about my trauma, I'm moving into a a different use of words and I'm moving into more of that um, expressive art form. And that helps me make sense of the trauma without having to expose too much of what I'm experiencing in a way that I can't tolerate or that I can't share with another person.
0: Yeah, Does that, that fits, fits, I think, with what you said before about how it's it helps you access, access things that are hard to access because the trauma you would want to suppress. You don't really want to look at it necessarily.
1: It's, it's kind of paradoxical. You feel that you can't express it, and yet you must express it. So you must yeah. find a medium in which you can express it that yeah. satisfies that without um, creating uh, a sense of overexposure.
0: Yeah. Uh, do art therapists ever incorporate, so we're talking poetry therapy in this program. Do you uh, art therapists incorporate writing in, in their work?
1: Uh, yes, yes. Um, One of the lovely things that you can do in the creative arts therapies is that you can move from one art form to another. So somebody might create um, a painting, for example, in art therapy, and then rather than just talking about the painting, they might move in response to the painting or they might um, express something about that, that painting in poetry. So art therapists do like to cross those boundaries. All the arts therapists like to cross those boundaries. A poetry therapist might... Um, invite people to uh, create a visual image to accompany the poem. And likewise, uh, an arts therapist might ask somebody to to create a poem to respond to or incorporate the the art form. Um, In addition, if you're working in a group and somebody creates a painting, for example, other members of the group might respond to that painting rather than just the art therapist respond, other members of the group might respond through art forms, including poetry.
0: Yeah, I think it's so interesting in a group when people might write in response to other people's writing.
1: Mm-hmm, yeah, it
0: seems to extend it. Yes, it.
1: that happens in in art therapy too. You know, something else that comes to mind when you ask that question. Um, I've also supervised art therapists for many years. So art therapists who are working in the field who need to um, who come together and talk to a supervisor who functions like a consultant, and um, I've had um, people in supervision um, experiment with, instead of writing up their session with a sort of a clinical session note, which is what they're taught in school, I've asked them to write up the session in poetry instead or to write a haiku about what just happened yeah. in, their, in their therapy session. Um, with a client. And that's really helpful because it's the same process, it helps clarify and call attention to something that they, they wouldn't be able to access if they were just writing in clinical language. So that's another way that our therapists or all our therapists can use um, the written word more effectively.
0: Exactly. And asking them to do haiku is perfect because it calls for uh, focus and, and <clears throat> selection, conscious or not quite conscious of what's really important.
1: Yes. And that focused selection process, I think, works across all the creative arts therapies. I've seen it in art therapy. I've seen it in movement, um, where somebody creates a, a movement type of haiku, if you can imagine, um, or a, a, a piece of music that carries a, just a couple of notes that evokes a, a, a key emotion for somebody.
0: What's going on in art therapy these days? Can I ask that question? Are there certain trends going on? I know you do international work.
1: Well, I think that it depends on which arts therapy community you're talking about. Because um, I think one of the things that's happening in, in art therapy in the United States is that uh, we're constantly trying to find a way to um, be successful in the healthcare system that we have in the United States. And you see the same kind of, uh, I would describe it as a, a struggle for professional definition and inclusion you see that in, um, in England, um, in Europe, you see it in, uh, in Asia, in Hong Kong, for example, places where there are therapists, they all have to figure out how do we get our services out to people within the healthcare system that we have. So in the United States, what's happening is there's a lot of push for research uh, to provide uh, the evidence base that the creative arts therapies mm-hmm. are effective. That's really important. But in other areas of the world, that isn't as important because it, they, they operate in a different kind of healthcare um, setting. So there might be other things that are, that are coming to the foreground. I had mentioned before, um, community arts therapy seems to be um, very big right now. Neuroscience, of course, is huge because neuroscience has taken, uh, uh, taken over. Everybody's thinking about neuroscience these days. The brain is hot. So, <laughs> so research uh, yeah. in neuroscience is important. Um, and I, I had mentioned uh, community arts therapies, which I think is a, is a response to finding um, less uh, psychotherapy-intensive ways of working uh, to, to provide access uh, for more people to access the, the creative arts therapies.
0: Great. Well, well, thanks, Lynn. I'm really glad you could be here with us to uh, elaborate on this uh, really important topic.
1: Well, it's a pleasure. It's always a pleasure to talk to you, Charlie, and it's great to have an opportunity for more people to find out about the creative arts therapies and uh, find out what's happening in their communities.
0: Now I'm going to be talking with Beth Jacobs. She's a clinical psychologist in private practice in Evanston and Chicago, Illinois. Beth, I'm so glad you can be here to give me the perspective of a practitioner on poetry therapy. I'd like to uh, hear what
3: what happens
0: in a typical poetry therapy group.
3: Well, I'll tell you about the kinds of groups I do, which are a little bit broader. I might call them expressive writing groups that include poetry. And because they're broader, they're, there's this wide range of, uh, of activities that goes on. So sometimes... I'll bring in a stimulus for writing, basically. It might be a poem. It might be um, a particular exercise or activity like writing a certain type of list and turning it into a poem or writing a certain kind of dialogue or writing a letter. Or sometimes I go in the group and the women are all worked up about a certain topic and I'll just throw my idea away and say we're gonna write about that topic. Then we just take time and everybody Just writes. I I really emphasize that their writing is for themselves. Their writing is for the process. It's not for any product. And then we kind of go around the room and we share whatever people want to share. They always have the option to pass. And and then usually we talk about, uh, you know, we talk about something that you would never have anticipated we would have talked about in the beginning. Um, After the group, I always, um, I always type up what Uh, people in my group write, and I bring it back to them the next time. Um, I think people like to see things kind of uh, in a more polished form. It kind of gives their writing more uh, emphasis to them. If I'm not going on too much, I'll say one more thing. The grandparents group, we actually ended up self-publishing a book of their writings. That's been a very big event, the idea of turning women who many of them don't even have much education into authors much formal education, I should say. Turning them into authors was really beautiful. When
0: you bring things back in the next week, does that ever become a, a stimulus for like a continuation?
3: It's usually a. Uh, it can be a continuation of discussion. We rarely build on the writing exactly, but um, more with the younger people. When I bring, uh, we we might start the group with a reading again of the things they wrote the week before. So we might have a little more discussion about it. And then usually we move on to the next topic or idea.
0: How is how is this different than uh, just a writing group? You know, I mean, you're there, you're a trained uh, therapist. Um, how, how can we say this is different than people who just get together as a writing group?
3: Mm-hmm. That's a good question. I think it's really the emphasis on the... Um, expressive interaction and not the product. Um, so we're really, you know, I'm kind of focused on on people being able to express themselves in a new way and interact around it as opposed to producing something.
0: So you don't try to help anybody write a better poem, really.
3: Never, ever. I, and, I, and with the younger people, it's really important to reassure them this is not English class, this is not, know i don't care how you spell you know we have certain ground rules you can't gossip about other girls in the group and you're writing you know that's about the only ground rule we really have Um, we have one exercise i do with the the young girls they're like 11 12 years old uh it's a it's a writing and ripping party where you, you get to get all your emotions out on on paper and, um, and then we have a little party and we put the garbage in the middle and we shred the paper. Um, on that day, they're allowed to use cuss words. That's about the only <laughs> other. <laughs> that, that's one of the fun things about that day. But yeah, there, there aren't, there aren't rules. I always tell people if you don't like the instructions then just do anything you feel like doing. Mm-hmm. It's very, very uh, oriented towards the process being very personal and um, for just the release of whatever they want to get out of their systems.
0: Is the focus very uh, problem-centered, or is it more uh, expression-centered, I guess I could say? I would say uh, not, exactly. like, not so specific, you
3: know? Right, right. I mean, a lot of times people have ideas for each other, especially in the discussions. Uh, they might say, well, you should try this or you should try that. But the it is very release and expression-oriented.
0: And when you uh, go looking for these things you might bring in as a stimulus, uh, can you characterize what you look for?
3: Well, in that case, I am often building on what's been happening. A big day, one day was on the topic of discipline. And then I might look for a poem that has that theme. Um, I get requests from the grandparents group a lot. They wanted to do a Black History Day. So for that one, I had them do their personal Black history by decades, and I, I gave them little squares with, like, you know, 50s writing, 60s writing, you know, uh, different fonts like that look like each decade, and I had them write what did being Black mean to them in each decade. Oh,
0: that's a super idea. Whoa.
3: Yeah. It's so fun. So a lot of times I, I try to get ideas that build off of what I see, con- what the concerns are that arise.
0: You mentioned... Uh, Poetry, journaling, and expressive writing—is there a connection there? Do you encourage journaling when you're when you're running these groups?
3: Um, well, journaling was really my avenue into the whole poetry therapy field, and I do I do encourage it, but I'm very I'm very big on not pushing it. Um, journals, when you give people the idea, it will take hold when they need it to. Um, But then my whole interest in this field started actually being being a psychologist, and so many people talked about writing in journals in their therapy, and I myself have written in a journal my whole life. So I started realizing there are all these therapeutic ways you could use a journal, and I started kind of tailor-making designs, uh, designing, like, exercises for people to address their particular issue. I would give them particular writing exercises. So, like, the person who had piles and piles of journals, you know, where they kept saying the same emotion over and over, I would give them a very contained exercise. And then people who maybe had trouble writing much about their emotions, I would give them, you know, particular ways to draw out feelings. And that's how I started the whole thing. So I do encourage journaling for anybody who shows a corner of an interest.
1: Now,
0: with your journal, can you say that you have personally benefited, let's say, psychologically, uh, from journaling?
3: Um, I, I joined the many people who say a phrase I hear all the time when I talk to people about journals, which is, journaling saved my life. I really wow. feel that, yeah. And you'll hear that a lot from serious journalers. It's just been so important to me. It's kind of been a core of um, my existence throughout my life.
0: Does the journal... Is it, is it writing about the, the issue of, let's say, the time for you, uh, the getting it out? Is that what it's mostly about? Or um, clarifying?
3: Yeah, it, there's something almost magical in the extra articulation of writing. You can think about something, you can talk and talk, but there's something in that kind of integration of your body, your mind, your emotions that really really draws things together for me. Um, It always, I always kind of push my writing. It also always brings me into the next thing. It's hard to explain, but um, I always end up, I almost always end up with some kind of surprise in the writing, like that I, I find like the next creative avenue or the next direction that I wouldn't have articulated just thinking about something. So it's very much therapeutic, integrative, and creative.
0: Okay. It sounds like you you use what you know with yourself. In other words, I'm um, thinking you don't just open your journal and start writing. It's another day, and I keep a journal, so I'll write something today. But more, I'm almost getting the idea you might give yourself assignments.
3: No, I wouldn't give myself assignments, and I might start out with like it's another day, but I just keep it going until I kind of uh, I kind of use up what's pat in my brain, and then some fresh stuff starts to come out. And the freedom, I'm, I'm very big on the whole idea of the freedom of writing just for yourself. It's so important that you don't care about how it sounds and you don't care about how people feel about it. It's so for yourself. That really builds up an articulation of your own process that's free. Does that make
0: sense, sort of? <laughs> was, uh, yes, I was, um, yes, I think so. I hope it makes sense to people who are listening because I think <laughs> good, <laughs> I really good about things that. about why why uh, why writing is helpful for people, and and it sounds like also if you would just just as a reiteration, kind of wrap up, why writing in the group context with someone like you uh, helps people.
3: Um. Maybe I'm trying to help bring them to this process that I have discovered myself, which is to kind of flesh out what's inside a little more fully. And then, in the context of the group, the beauty of it is that every person has the same starting point, but no person ends up at the same point. So the first few people who read might say, Oh, I didn't have anything to say, or I'm not saying it well. But then, as everybody starts reading, People realize that we are fleshing out these individual processes and that none are right, none are wrong, um, but each is unique. And when people feel that in a group, um, it's very powerful and um, it is kind of liberating.
0: I'd say people who are in groups with you were pretty lucky.
3: That's a sweet thing to say. Thank you. I really oh. enjoy it. It's, it is um it is so dear to my heart to do this work and I'm so thankful to be able to. I really am.
0: Well, thanks a lot for being here and telling us about it. We've been talking with Beth Jacobs, a clinical psychologist here in the Illinois area, and she works with expressive writing with clients is an established therapeutic approach about which little is known. It's a fairly young discipline, and there are not yet a large number of practitioners. I'm going to be talking now with a man who knows poetry therapy inside and out, probably better than anyone, Dr. Nick Mazza, chaired professor of social work at Florida State University in Tallahassee. He's the founding and current editor of the Journal of Poetry Therapy and the author of the text Poetry Therapy Theory and practice, and he has many years' experience as a poetry theory therapy practitioner. Nick, I'm glad to have you here on the show. Glad to be here, Charlie. Thanks. I'd like to start out by just hearing a little bit about your own poetry therapy work. What kind of populations you uh, work with, and that sort of thing?
2: There's a range. I've uh, you know through the years I've worked with. I start out you know back in the early '70s uh, working with the elderly uh, and and uh, uh, long-term long-term care uh, just you know new to, to, to poetry therapy and and through the years of work with adolescents uh, doing also done grief work adults uh, groups families so it's been you know uh, quite a range and of course we all uh, learn along the uh, uh, along the way and the most recent uh, work is i my full-time commitment is as a, as a professor and a, a Formerly a dean at the at at the college, Uh, I've you know limited time on how much I can do with with uh, uh, practice, but uh, trying to stay active. And the uh, there's a program I started a few years ago at the college uh, that's interdisciplinary. It's called the uh, Arts and Athletics Community Outreach Program for at-risk youth, and it's a summer camp we put on every summer. This is our fourth. This past summer was our fourth uh, one, uh, bringing in. uh, athletes all sports the male and female uh, to work with the with the children and also people from art music dance and I do the uh, uh, the poetry uh, part the sessions I do with them it's called running with words and essentially using poetry and music and even a range of music from traditional to uh, hip-hop uh, and uh, we uh, get them into uh, you know, into into writing and so uh, uh, it's been helpful uh, to them because it's really focused on positive youth development, sort of building on their, on their strengths. Uh, and uh, uh,
0: it's uh, they've responded uh, very well to it. How do you function with these groups? I mean, how, how big is a group, for instance?
2: Yeah, the, uh, the camp, we take in 20, uh, 20 uh, uh, students. But the groups are, you know, to make it more manageable, about 10 students at, at, at a time uh, that we, we work with uh with them Um, and again these are these are low income students who uh uh, have limited uh you know really under-resourced they don't have much
0: and i I think you had mentioned to me that you have a some sort of model that you follow through
2: the years again we learn along the way you know we build on what others have done and and my own work and own research so what i felt was missing in poetry therapy was an integrative model of poetry therapy and so sometimes some people read poems to uh, to clients or to uh, students uh sometimes to do expressive writing so what i uh, came up with through through my own research reviewing the literature and, uh, and direct research is uh the model is r e s the r stands for conceptive prescriptive that means producing a poem or a song uh, to the client and putting expressive creative the e Uh, has to do with uh, promoting uh, the uh, uh, self-expression writing, whether it's uh, individual writing, group writing, or family. And the S is symbolic ceremonial, the importance of uh, what's poetic, the importance of metaphors, of symbols, uh, and that's uh, so that it's a a poetic approach uh, to practice. And so, again, sometimes, you know, the R, the receptive, might be reading a poem, which leads to uh, expressive, creative, maybe they're writing one, and then the client, I'm using the word client as a generic uh, term, uh, then has a chance to perform that, which becomes symbolic ceremonial. So, with these uh, middle schoolers, they got to engage in all that, and there's some pre-structured exercises you can use for the, the writing, but... Uh, they were natural. I, I'll give you an example. I, I had uh, had a Langston Hughes poem, "Dream Deferred," and I said, "Would anybody like to read it?" And you know, these these are kids. They don't necessarily get a spontaneous reaction. But this one young man, he not only uh, wanted to read it, he got up and broke into uh, into, a, into a, a song. He he, he was singing uh, the uh, the poem, and then uh, had students act perform it. So it came pretty naturally. Uh, but it's important to solidify their gains uh, through some sort of symbolic action, and this is where, at the very end of the camp, we have a you know we have a little dinner where we invite their families. They can share their work, their artwork, but also read their uh, read their poems. A similar example I've done grief work. Now, this is a different project though, uh, where I've uh, you know volunteered to work with you know, areas of death and loss, and there's a. a a program uh, for uh, for children who have loved ones who passed, have uh, passed away. And so an example of that model would be you know, sharing a poem that relates to the loss, having them write a letter, maybe to the deceased person, to kind of say what maybe he or she felt didn't get a chance to, to say. And then the symbolic ceremonial might be having them do something ceremonial, like burial letter or or whatever, again, it's respectful with culture and religion and so forth.
0: Let's shift to a different role. Your role is the editor of the Journal for Poetry Therapy. And I'm wondering if, with all the things across your desk, if you notice any any trends in poetry therapy these days?
2: Yeah, it's a good question, Troy. uh, I started this journal in 1987. And so we're in our 28th year of publication. And what I've noticed uh, through the years is that the depth and quality of the articles has increased. And again, the articles were uh, have always been, uh, I think, uh, good and worth, worthwhile, but they were more descriptive, uh, maybe anecdotal. And so through the years, what we've seen now is uh, uh, more research, both qualitative and, and quantitative and that uh, the uh, the range has has expanded in terms of uh, topical areas. Everything from writing about uh, or using poetry in uh, human rights work with human using uh, poetry therapy uh, in clinical uh, settings, and also uh, in educational. And keeping in mind that uh, to be respective of the particular discipline. So if you're using. Ed- poetry, therapy, and education, your goal is educational. You're not doing therapy, but we recognize that there are certain therapeutic aspects that go on in teaching. Uh, and so keeping that in mind, it's been, it's been uh, really good. And uh, the other thing that I've noticed uh, with the, uh, the journal is an amazing increase of international appeal. So I've, uh, we've had articles published uh, across the world from Portugal, Israel, Iran, Venezuela, there's Canada, the United Kingdom, and and on and on, and so it really is uh, truly uh, uh, international in scope.
0: And and you and the research is getting better, more solid. Yeah,
2: more sophisticated. It's being uh, abstracted and or cited, I should say, uh, by other uh, uh, scholars. We've made it into all the major databases, including uh, PsychInfo. Uh, so I think that all helps build the. the the quality and the scholarly nature of uh, of the uh, articles.
0: Okay, and the organization that publishes the journal, uh, the National Association for Poetry Therapy, could you uh, say something about that?
2: Yeah, the journal is is published by Taylor and Francis, which is a you know major major publisher based uh, in the UK, but it's sponsored by the National Association for uh, Poetry Therapy. And this is a group that I've been involved with since, almost since the beginning, the early '70s. Uh, it was called. Uh, it was formed in uh, 1969 by Jack Leedy, who's a psychiatrist. And uh, this was in Brooklyn, New York, and it was called the Association for Poetry Therapy. Then, in 1981, it became formally incorporated as the National Association for Poetry Therapy, and it has code of ethics standards. Uh, we, held, we hold annual conferences, different parts of the country, uh, uh, so uh, open to all all disciplines. Uh, and again, what I've defined poetry therapy is the use of language, symbol, and story in therapeutic, educational, and community-building capacities. That's appealing, I believe, uh, to uh, many people uh, in the organization and and those just interested in poetry therapy.
0: And if people want to know more about Poetry Therapy, the best place to go would be to poetrytherapy.org, the website for the association, where they can learn about training and what else.
2: Yeah, correct. What, it's, it's great. If uh, you go to that website, you'll uh, see an information. Uh, uh, matter of fact, there's a current call for proposals for the uh, uh, National Conference. What's particularly helpful uh, to uh, individuals, I mean, there's obviously information about the organization, membership, and so forth. But there's uh, information. There's a resource uh, a link, uh, which will take you to uh, different poetry sites, uh, uh, different uh, uh, materials that could be used, and also to uh, uh, organizations that uh, offer training and credentialing in in poetry therapy. and, and uh, so that, that's particularly
0: helpful. That's the uh, the associate, that's the formal arm of poetry therapy. If someone wanted to seriously pursue training and become a, yeah. a, a official poetry therapist, they would want to connect with the organization and, and maybe go to the conferences. I, yeah. I've been to the conferences and one yeah. thing about them is they're small. And uh, when you go there, you meet people like you who write the important books in the field, and it's, it's really uh, stimulating and, and motivates people.
2: It really is, dry. and of course, uh, you know, the relationships, I can't speak enough about it because it's professional, but there's that human element, the personal element that, uh, so it's not a, you know, some organizations, you get people just, my dog's bigger than your dog. Uh, so this has been really good. But the thing I do want to emphasize, though, is that the National Association for Poetry Therapy is not the training or credentialing uh, uh, program. So, if you go to uh, that website, then there's a link uh, to the Federation for Bibliopoetry Therapy, which seems to be doing most of the work with credentialing and and uh, and, and training.
0: Yeah, well, I want to wrap up with with uh, well, sure. one last question, which is, uh, from your perspective, what do you what do you see as the particular strengths of poetry therapy, or is there particular populations that it works especially well with? I would
2: say the first primary uh, uh, strength is that it speaks to uh, to people's strengths. It's a very respectful approach, whether it's in therapy, education, community awareness. It's responsive to uh, uh, matters like diversity, because necessarily relies on understanding what, you know, individual's language and their symbol and story. It uh, can be helpful in terms of universalizing feelings and and uh, uh, and promoting uh, uh, dialogue. Uh, so I would say its strength could be as an adjunctive technique that you use with others. It's very adaptable to a wide range of theories. Uh, as a treatment approach, in and of itself, as a theory, uh, again depending on the individual's background and uh, and
0: interest. Well, thank you very much. We've been talking with Nick Mazza, the editor of the journal therapy thanks thank you for joining us for our special themed podcast on the subject of poetry therapy and thanks again to my three wonderful guests Lynn Capitan Beth Jacobs and Nick Maza you've been listening to poetry spoken here I'm Charlie Rossiter inviting you to join us again next time to Let Poetry Speak to You. Music for today's program was written and performed by Jack rossiter Monley. And remember, Poetry Spoken Here is more than a podcast. You can like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash poetryspokenhere. Follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash poetryspokenhere. For more about today's show and other Poetry Spoken Here podcasts, as well as our blog, just visit our website, PoetrySpokenHere.com. If you'd like to submit suggestions of poets or topics for future podcasts, you can send to our email address, PoetrySpokenHere, at gmail.com.